Um, so excited for the series that we're in uh, about Advent, and today I want to begin by talking about TVs. Just by a show of hands, how many of you in this room have zero, one, or two TVs in your house? Raise your hand. Zero, one, or two. Raise your hand high. Okay. How many of you have three or more TVs? Go, be honest, be bold, okay, it's okay. You're actually in the majority. The majority of Americans, according to Nielsen, which tracks TV ratings, says the average American has three or more TVs in their home, um, which I know there were some pretty awesome ones on sale on Black Friday, so if, in case you want to become average, you can buy another one. Um, you know, my first TV was a really kind of basic, boring TV. It looked a lot like this. Anybody remember these TVs? You had to get up and go across the room to, to change the channel. Um, and, and a really significant moment happened in my childhood. This little knob right here, it broke. And so to turn it on, we couldn't figure out how to do that. But my dad is really creative, and this was his idea. And so I think it was over a year we turned on our TV with a pair of, you know, those pliers. And um, so whenever I see one, I get nostalgic. And my aunt came to visit us. I'll never forget. It was Christmas 1993, and we're sitting down to watch TV, and I get up and go across the room, open the drawer, pull out the near nose pliers, and she goes, what are you doing? I said, I'm turning on the TV. Like, aren't normal people doing this, you know? And so that night, she was taking my brother and I, her nephews, out to see a movie. The movie was Cool Runnings, still one of the best movies ever. Um, and, and we went out and bought a new TV, and then we put it on our front porch, and she said, hey, let's play Ding Dong Ditch. We rang the doorbell, ran off. My parents came out and saw the new TV, and I think they just got rid of that TV like two years ago. So um, it, it did a lot of good for us as a family. You know, along the way, though, with that new Sanyo TV we got in 93, we got a remote control, and it really was a life-changing invention. I mean, um, I'm not sure if you remember before we all had these smartphones, but, but there was a time where you would sit in somebody's living room, and if you didn't have the remote control, it was like the end of the world, because they were picking what we, you were watching for TV. And, um, and I did some research this week about where remotes come from, because I think remote controls are really tied to our American psyche. The remote control was invented in the 1880s by a man named Nikola Tesla. You know him. He invented a lot of other things. If you've ever seen a Tesla car, that ties its name to him. And um, it wasn't very well received. The U.S. Navy had this to say about his technology. It's too flimsy for war. And so the Navy was really right on that one. Um, but later on, this began to invade our living rooms. In the 1930s, Philco invented this thing called the Mystery Control and um, this thing is like the size of a large Bible, and you would hold it on your lap, and like a rotary phone, you would turn it to change the channels. Then Zenith titled theirs the Lazy Bones Remote, which is a great title, and um, it had one button to change the channels. My favorite one is this one. It's called the Flashmatic, and it's like, it's like, a la it's like you're playing laser tag, but you would, you would click it, and then the light would come from your remote, and it would hit a, a mirror on the TV and change the channel. But the problem was is it was triggered by any light in your room. So you turn the lights on or off, the channel changes. You, you open the blinds, the channel changes. A light goes out, the channel changes. Um, and then eventually we got to the clicker. And so if you've ever wondered why do they call our own a clicker, it's because of Zenith. This was literally a clicker. A hammer would hit a piece of metal inside this thing, and it would make a sound the TV would pick up and change the channel. If you had dogs, they went nuts. Um, but that's, that's how far we were willing to go. You know, and I think that the remote control is a great insight into our American psyche, that, that we do our best to make things as easy 
and as non-cumbersome as possible. I think, in fact, in a bigger scale, I think it shows us that we prefer the path of least resistance and most control. That's, that's not, you know, a, a super um, new idea, but I do think it's a really true idea. I think the reason why we have so many remote controls in our, in our house, um, houses, um, is because we prefer to be in control. And while it's great when it comes to watching TV, this is a great truth for, you know, human invention and innovation, sometimes this is a huge stumbling block to our relationship with God. Because in pursuing the path of least resistance and most control, sometimes it means we struggle to follow where God is leading us. And this morning, we're going to lean into the story of Joseph in the Christmas story. As you prepare for Christmas, we're leaning into these experiences of people who are a part of the the Christmas story. And we're going to be in Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, please please open to Matthew chapter 1. It's the first book in the second section of the Bible called the New Testament. And in Matthew 1, 18 to 25, we, we hear about this man who's going to become the earthly father of Jesus. You know, each week in the series, we're putting a card in your bulletin that um, gives you some preparation for the next Sunday. So last Sunday, we had this card about Joseph. The question was, how has your faith affected your ability to obey God? And this week in your bulletin, there's a card. It's got a picture of a manger on it. So I'd encourage you to pull that out and take it home with you. On the back of it, it's got some scripture readings for you to spend time with each day. And, uh, and for me, these have been really encouraging times for me just to pause. This is a crazy time of year. It can be really chaotic and stressful. And so for a few minutes, Every day I'm just pausing and listening to what God wants me to hear and I'm being intentional about preparing for Christmas, not just preparing my house, but preparing my heart. And so if you have that card, please take it home and read it this week. But I want to read from Matthew chapter 1 and then I want us to explore uh, Joseph's story today. So if you, if you have a copy of the scriptures or if you're going to follow on the screen, would you stand up as we read this passage of scripture together to honor God's word? Uh, I'm going to share some commentary and some of my thoughts today, but this is the word of of the Lord. In verse 18, Matthew writes, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When Mary, his mother, had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save people from their sins. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken to the prophet, for behold, the virgins shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and he took his wife, but knew not her until she'd given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Father, I pray that you'd speak to us powerfully today. And through my humble and feeble words, I pray that you might speak to the hearts of each person in this room and each person who's watching online. In your name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. One of the things I think it's a challenge for us whenever we open the scriptures, especially at Christmas time, is to understand the world that these people were living in. 
Because they weren't living in a, a world of flashmatic remotes or high-definition TV. They weren't living in a world of 21st century luxury. They were living in a very different place. And Joseph found himself in a very difficult predicament. He really had two bad choices that he didn't like either one of, and he was trying to decide which one to choose. Some of you have been in that moment, maybe this year, where you've been faced with a couple options and you don't really like either one of them. How do you navigate that? How do you make those decisions? And so I want us to lean into Joseph's story because I think we have a lot of the same experience he did trying to go, what do I do? What's the right decision? How do I honor God? Well, well, Joseph is, says he's betrothed to Mary, and so it's important that we understand some Hebrew marriage customs. This was not the world of online dating or, um, or uh, you know, Tinder or Match.com or eHarmony, none of those things. Marriages in that day were arranged by parents, typically um, for financial purposes, and so a contract was negotiated between two parents for their children to marry, and then the wedding would take place one year later. And during that one year, some really important things happened. For the bride, it was her chance to prove that she was a godly, pure, faithful woman. And the way that would be seen is that she would not get pregnant over that one year because she'd have no um, connection or time with her betrothed. And so if that woman stayed pure throughout that year, it showed, hey, she's an upstanding woman and worthy of being married to. For the, for the husband or the fiancé on that side, he went home and he started a building project. He went to Home Depot or Lowe's and bought his supplies and, and he expanded on his parents' house. And so he would, buy, he would build a room for him and his new wife to live in. And when he was preparing that room, he was thinking about spending his time with her. And when that, that year was done, that room would be finished and he and his family would go in a procession over to his bride's house. He would be there in a ceremony. They would get married and then he would take her literally back to his home, to this room that he had built. And that would be the place where they would begin their new family. And it was during that one-year waiting period while Joseph is hammering nails and setting beams that he discovers that Mary's pregnant. And it says that he's an upstanding and just man. And what that means is that he was faced with difficult options. The right thing to do legally was for him to go to the edge of the city, to the city gates where the legal authorities were, and say, hey, my fiance, she's pregnant, and it wasn't me. Because the law said if a woman, while betrothed, became pregnant, and it was not by her betrothed, that she was to be stoned. She was to be killed. And Joseph's a just man, and he goes, I, I don't want to break the law. I don't want to deceive these people. But at the same time, I have this love and affection for her. And so he says, okay, I can't go down this one road that's, that's having her stoned, but I can't not say anything. And so his option was, I'm just going to put her away quietly. Maybe that means that he was going to divorce her. Maybe that means that he was going to send her away on some sort of exile to live in a different city away from her family, somewhere where she could raise this child. But the angel introduces a third way. And this is often how God works with us, where all we can see are these two options and both of them are terrible. We go, God, what am I going to do? And all of a sudden at the last minute, God opens a third way. Have you ever been surprised by God like that? Where you're thinking, okay, this, is, this has got to be a miracle because I don't see this working out. And all of a sudden, something that you never planned for that wasn't on your radar opens up and it's the provision of God. And that's what happened. Joseph saw that and so he sacrificed his own reputation, his own privileges, and he brought Mary into his home early to take care of her. He took her as his wife and he obeyed God. 
When I was thinking about this passage in this sermon, I was reminded of uh, moving to Phoenix 14 years ago to start my season in college. And I had a pastor there. His name was Dan Yuri. And he had a lot of mantras, you know, pastorisms. Like there are things that I'm going to say that you're just going to pick up on that I say kind of over and over again, again and again. They kind of get old after a while. Probably after a year or two, Jamie will come up here and he'll give a fake Scott sermon and kind of do all my mannerisms and say all my little phrases. And, um, and so I have some of my own phrases. And one of the phrases that Dan Yuri said that really stuck with me is this phrase. He said, obedience doesn't require understanding. And that's the first part of our big idea this morning. Obedience doesn't require understanding. You know, the challenge for us to connect with a story like this is that we have to lean into the places in our own lives where we don't understand where we find ourselves dealing with discomfort, where we find ourselves struggling to make a big decision. As, as I heard this phrase for the very first time, I can remember I was trying to decide what do I major in in college? What do I want to do with my life? What do I want to be when I grow up? And I was sensing that God was leading me in a direction, but it didn't make sense and I didn't understand in my own human understanding but I had the sense that God was calling me to move forward. And so when I heard this, this was the kick in the butt that got me to take a step forward into the career that I'm now standing in today. It was this phrase. I didn't understand it. It didn't make sense to me. But God said, I want you to go. And so I stepped forward in faith. And this morning, I want to look at the example of Joseph and our own experience and look at three reasons why we don't obey God's direction. And the first reason is I think we don't obey is because we don't understand. I think many of us don't obey God because we don't understand what he's doing. We don't understand how the plan is working itself out. It doesn't make sense to us in our own human understanding. Just by a show of hands, how many of you have ever been confused by what God did? How God worked, okay? So you're not abnormal. You're not weird. You're very normal. Um, And the reason why is that many of us struggle to understand as we look forward, as we live our lives looking forward, God, this doesn't make sense. How is this going to work out? A few years ago, before he passed away, Steve Jobs gave a famous speech at Stanford's commencements, and he said this, you can't connect the dots looking forward, you can only connect them looking back. Now, I don't know where Steve Jobs stood when it comes to his faith, but that statement is exactly true. That as we live forward, we can't connect the dots of how God is working, of how he's moving, of how things are going to come together. But as we look back, we see, oh my gosh, like how did I miss that? How did I miss what God was doing? Or we can't see and understand all the things that God's working together, but he's bringing this winding path into his best way. But in the moment, while we're living forward, it doesn't feel like connected dots. It feels like a wild goose chase. It feels like God's just taken us on this crazy journey. A few years ago, I learned that the Welsh, people who live in the section of Great Britain known as Wales, they have a term for the Holy Spirit. They call the Holy Spirit the wild goose. And the reason they call the Holy Spirit the wild goose is that the Holy Spirit is unpredictable, uncontrollable, and difficult to understand. See, the thing is, if you've tamed God... And God does everything that you understand. God does everything that you can control. And God does everything that you um, can trust. Then that's not really the work of God. That's your work. You've tamed God down to the size that you can control. But instead, if God is constantly showing you up in places that surprise you and leave you uncomfortable, that's, that's the work of God. And what's interesting is that Joseph didn't understand. 
I'm sure he didn't get how this was all going to work, because I promise you this wasn't in his plan when he got engaged to Mary. But he didn't let his understanding get in the way of his obedience. What's interesting is in the scriptures, we read the story of another man at the exact same time who does. Mary had a cousin, and her name was Elizabeth. And Elizabeth's husband was a man named Zachariah. And one day, Zechariah was in the temple, and an angel came to Zechariah and told him that he was going to be a father. And he's like, my wife is barren. We can't have children. Um, and he's like, no, you're going to be a father of a really important man who we now know as John the Evangelist or John the Baptizer. And, and he said, no, this doesn't make sense. I don't understand. And finally, the angel got so mad at Zechariah's questions that the angel made Zechariah mute for months. He couldn't speak because he questioned out of his lack of understanding, and didn't obey what the angel was saying. But Joseph, in fact, doesn't question. He doesn't raise all these concerns. He just trusts and obeys. And many of us today are like Joseph and Zechariah. We're confused. We're not really sure what God is doing. We're not really sure how he's working. And our lack of understanding makes us stuck because we just can't see it. A few years ago in 2009, and then again in 2011, and then again in 2012, my wife and I both were convinced that I needed to move on professionally, that the season I was in at my church was done. And so I began to put my resume together. I began networking. I began looking for new positions, talking to everybody that I knew. Um, But while we felt like we should go, it felt like God kept saying, stay. And that was not what we wanted to hear at all. And yet, what was happening was God was working in ways we couldn't see. In 2013, a new pastor came to that church, and he raised me up and elevated my role and gave me opportunities that, frankly, if I hadn't stayed and had those opportunities, I wouldn't be standing here today. And then in 2014, my wife and our twins spent half of that year in the hospital as my wife was pregnant and on bed rest, and then they were in the NICU and And it was in that season that an incredible community rallied around us and loved us and supported us. I told a friend last week that for for four and a half months, we had two meals brought into our home every week. That's a long time. That's a lot of food. That's a lot of frozen lasagna, you know? Um, But it was in that season that we found such love and support that as we look back, it's no wonder why God told us to stay. If we'd left, I wouldn't have had that experience. I wouldn't have had that opportunity. If we'd left, we would have gone to a new city where no one knew us, where we wouldn't have had that kind of community. We wouldn't have had that kind of support. What we didn't understand looking forward, God did. And because we trusted him and stayed, sometimes kicking and screaming, God was able to work. You know, the truth is, for many of us, when we make understanding the determining factor of our obedience... We're guaranteeing ourselves a future of regret. Because if you have to understand everything that God does, you're going to miss a lot of opportunities. And a few years ago, two sociology professors from Cornell, they studied regret. And you know what they found? They found in the short term as humans, we regret our bad decisions. Those things you go, man, I don't know why I said that. Oh, man, I don't know why I did that. I'm so dumb. You know, those decisions you go, you wish you could have back. But in the long term, we don't regret our bad actions or our missteps or our failures. You know what we regret in the long term? Our missed opportunities. 
And I don't want you to get to the end of your life and regret that you missed an opportunity because you didn't understand what God was doing. And if we struggle to obey because we don't understand and we don't deal with that with God, we're opening ourselves up to massive regret later. The second reason why I think we don't obey is because we aren't in control. Many of us don't obey because we're not in control. If you go back to the remote control analogy, there's a lot of us that like to be in charge. We like to to be in control. If that's you, you're the person who's driving when you're in the passenger seat, you're playing with the imaginary gas and brake pedal. Um, I think I hit close to home there with somebody. Um, You know, and that's because our individualism in our country, it leads to a lot of good, but it often gets in the way of following God. The truth is you can't follow Jesus and remain in control of your life. Those don't go together. If you're going to follow Jesus, he's going to have to be in control. He's going to have to be the one who is the leader. And contrary to the bumper sticker, there's no co-pilot with Jesus. He's either the pilot or he's not. You don't get your own steering wheel on your side of the car. He's the one who's driving. And Joseph wasn't in control of his life. Not in this moment and not in the future. For those of you who, who know the rest of the story, after Jesus is born, his family has to flee to Egypt and they're refugees for two years living in Egypt because King Herod is trying to kill all the babies so that he can kill this Jesus. Then they, they, they move back to Israel and they don't go back to Bethlehem. They go to Nazareth. They go to a new city. I mean, Joseph's life was one crazy escapade after the other. One uncomfortable, out-of-control moment after the other. And yet he chose to obey God. We don't know a lot about Joseph. At a certain point after Jesus is 12, it's like he's kind of just out of the picture. We don't know if he died when Jesus was a teenager. We don't know if he's just kind of the strong, silent type and Mary's the real bold, brash one. We don't know. But what we know is that every instance we have with Joseph He's choosing to obey God even when circumstances are out of control. And that reminds me of my friend, Tony Elliott. You've seen Tony's photos recently at our church. You know, that photo we show every week of the welcome bags is a picture Tony took. He came up a few weeks ago and took some great photos for us to use on our website and our worship services. Tony's a fantastic photographer. And I met him about nine years ago, 2007. Tony at that season in his life was really wrestling with faith. He was asking a lot of questions about God. He was experiencing this sense that God was working in his life and he wasn't sure what to do with it. And he began to listen to the sermons that I was giving at my church and we began to meet for coffee and became became friends. And Tony came to a place in 2009 at age 42 where he realized that he needed to make a decision about what he was going to do with Jesus. Was he going to trust Jesus with his life Was he going to continue to be in charge? Was Jesus going to be the leader? Or was Tony going to be the leader? And for Tony, it came down to this one sentence. He said, you know what, Scott? I just don't want to surrender. He goes, I'm 42 years old. I've been running my life for 42 years. If I'm honest, I've got pride. I like being in control. And I'm just afraid to let go. But by the grace of God, on a work trip, there was a man that he met who worked him through some of the hangups he had about surrendering to God. And he became a follower of Jesus and 
there's a photo, if we go back one more, to Tony. Um, I got to be there when he was baptized in 2010. That's his daughter, Sydney, who got baptized in 2014. Last summer, we baptized his other daughter, Emma, and his wife is now going to church with him as well, and she's not a believer, but we're praying for her as well. All of that came out of Tony's decision to let go of control of his life and trust God. And see, for many of you, it's not that you have questions about the Bible or questions about the divinity of Jesus. You just like being in control. You just like being in charge. And that's keeping you from following the next step God has for you. And that's why it's so important that we understand that until we surrender our lives to Jesus and we give up the keys and the remote control, we're never going to experience the life he intended for us. The third reason many of us don't obey God is that we just flat out don't trust him. We don't trust God. That may seem like it's a really um, bold statement or an honest statement or um, maybe it's a really vulnerable statement. But the truth is every relationship in your life moves at the speed of trust. Every relationship in your life is based upon trust. If you have trust, man, you can go fast. One of my friends was driving a, a Ferrari recently, and he took a video of, he was in the backseat, and the guy was driving, of how fast the speedometer was going up, and it was crazy. And, and in the relationships that are like that in your life, if you've got a crazy amount of trust, you can go crazy fast, you can go crazy places. But you know that if you don't trust somebody, you're not getting in a car with them, and you're not going anywhere. And if you've lost trust, you know what it's like. It's like somebody pulls the e-brake while you're on the freeway, and the car comes to a screeching halt. And in your relationship with God, if you don't trust him, it doesn't matter if he sends you an angel right in front of your face. You're not going to follow because you don't trust. That's why that song we just sang, which is, you know, bordering on places, you know, overplayed, the song Oceans. That's why for me, it's the scariest song we sing in church. Whenever I hear those, those notes, I, I get freaked out because I don't want to sing these words. Spirit, lead me where my trust is without borders. No way. That's freaky. You want me to go beyond the place where I trust you, God? Yeah, and I'm going to sing that like I'm happy or something. You know, like, that's a struggle for me. And that's why I think a lot of times we don't think about the words that we're singing. That prayer is a bold and honest prayer. You know, my, my pastor in Phoenix was right. Obedience doesn't require understanding, but that is only part of the story. The full big idea is this. Obedience doesn't require understanding, but it does require trust. You're not always going to understand what God is doing, but you are going to have to trust him. You may not always be in control of what God's doing, but you're going to have to trust him if you're going to follow him. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand here, but do you, do you trust God? What are the borders of that trust? What are the places that you bump up into where it's like, I just don't, I, I don't trust him there yet. I'm not ready to let go of that yet. That's why when I gave you that card last week, the, the question on the front was, how has your faith affected your ability to obey God? Joseph trusted God and it opened up the blessing of being able to raise the son of God. It says that, that Joseph gave him the name Jesus. That's a profound act to name a child. And Joseph got that opportunity because he was his father. And he got to see the Messiah on a daily basis. Again, one of the things I get, when I get to heaven one day, I'm going to ask God about is what happened to Joseph? 
What's the rest of his story? Because I just wonder, between the verses in the Bible, the sections we don't know, what happened? What did he see? What did he experience? We don't know that, but what we do know is that at every place, Joseph trusted God and he obeyed him. That's why one of my favorite hymns growing up was that song, Trust and Obey. You know, trust and obey, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. And the reason why that's so important is that obedience never happens without trust. Obedience never happens without trust. If you're going to follow what God's speaking to you, if you're going to step out in obedience, that's going to happen because you trust him. And if you don't trust him, you're either going to fake it or you're going to do it in a way that creates resentment. I'm going to do this, but I don't like it, you know? Or you're going to show obedience to everybody else, but in your heart, you're not really going to be obeying. And this week, as I was thinking about this truth, I was reminded of my friend Michael. Michael was one of my college students in Phoenix, and he left Phoenix to move to American University in Washington, D.C. And in Washington, D.C., Michael decided that he wanted to ride crew. And so crew is a a sport where you row. uh, And so I've got a little bit of an illustration here I want to share with you from Michael. And for those of you who've never seen a crew race before, I brought a video just so you can kind of get the picture. So we can roll that video real quick. So it's pretty, pretty incredible what these uh, men and women are able to do in a boat. Now, this, I couldn't get a crew boat because I guess, I guess there's one crew team here at Tri-City Prep. They've got a crew team, so that's good for them. But I, I don't know anybody there, so I couldn't borrow their boat. So I borrowed this kayak. Um, and uh, in a crew boat, there's not one person. There's like five or six people. And they're all lined up together. And this is the starting line, and the finish line is that way. And you row going that way, but you can't see where you're going. You're completely vulnerable. But what you do have in the crew boat, there's five or six of you in the row, in the foot of the boat right here, looking the direction you're going is what's called a coxswain. Got a picture right here of one of those people. And uh, they've got a microphone on and a speaker, and they yell at you the whole race. Just, Just Google crew race coxswain. These people are crazy. You know, and they're yelling and screaming, 50%, 75%, full, left, right. And they're yelling people's names out and they're screaming. And what Michael told me is he said, everyone in the boat, if you want to win, has to have full trust and commitment to the coxswain. Because you don't know where you're going. You can't see how the other teams are doing. And you have to trust that that person can see what you can't. And I said, that's exactly what we're talking about today. You're in a race. It's called life. And you don't understand what's happening. You're not in control. And you can't only trust yourself. Jesus is the coxswain in your boat. He can see things you can't see. He knows things about you, about what you're capable of that you don't know about yourself. And he's calling you to trust him. And many of you struggle because you're trying to row and you have no idea on earth where you're going. But you love being in control. And you demand that everything be understandable and you got trust issues. And that's why you're stuck. And until you come to the place where you surrender to him, 
you're never going to be able to take the next step. Joseph is not an overly special person. I don't think he's got any qualities as a man that are any different than the rest of us. But what he did have was that he trusted God. And because of that, he was able to take bold steps and he experienced God in a powerful way. And right now, I'm going to invite Jamie out. He's going to lead us in a song. And then I'm going to come back. The song is Trust and Obey. And as you sing these words and listen to them, I pray that you would meditate on them and what it is that God wants you to do in your life today. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.